Hey, Simon here, the host of the Worship Security Academy, the podcast. And before we get into today's show, I want to tell you about our online church safety and security conference called Securing Your Place of Worship. This year, our eighth annual event is going online. Please join us September 19th and 20th, where you'll hear speakers that include Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and Dr. James Densley from the Violence Project. Now, I don't want you to miss out, so please head over to worshipsecurity.org forward slash securing your place of worship conference. Worshipsecurity.org forward slash securing your place of worship conference to learn more and to get your tickets for this online event. Remember, September 19th and 20th. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Well, Stephen Winifred, it's always an honour and a privilege to be in your company. And I was just saying to you offline that I feel like it's around two and a half, three years that me and you got to know each other. And, you know, I count you as one of my friends. And we met for the first time last July at the Faith-Based Security Network. And you said something to me, which is really profound, because I said to you, Stephen, we were having a picture taken together. And I said to you, I wonder if people look at us and think, why are those two guys friends? I mean, I'm 45, a black English guy, and you're a 60-year-old Texan. And you said something which is really profound. You looked at me and you said, Simon, I don't think we're really much different, are we? And it was a great moment, Stephen, because it made me to pause and reflect. And it was true. There's actually more that joins me and you together, more similarities and what we have differences. So I want to I want to thank you for giving me that sort of um, my mindset check because I'm honoured and privileged to count you as one of my friends. And, and we are, you know, worlds apart, but we're no different, Stephen. Well, I, I think what we have most in common is we were both created by an awesome God, and we know that God. And that's what matters the most in this world is that uh, we are God's creation, and we know him, and even more important than us knowing him, he knows us. Yes, and, uh, yes. So we have that in common, and any differences that we might have are minor compared to that. And uh, so, you know, and, and I, I even talk about the differences in the name over the church that we go and worship, the name on is over the top, that really doesn't even matter because all that does matter is that we believe in Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He's the only way that we're going to see our Creator, God, our Father, uh, and His blood covers all of our sins. And so if we have a different name of a affiliation over the church and we might uh, see some of the scriptures differently, uh, and one of us is wrong and one of us is right, but Jesus's blood covers us, and it doesn't matter whether we're right or wrong on that, as long as we believe in Jesus, and we believe he's the only way, and we teach his, the Bible as best we can, and that's all that matters. And, you know, I think me and you, Stephen, have most probably had two or three podcast episodes together, I forget, but I'll drop the links below, because I always say that Stephen's sort of upbringing or early years are very similar to Job. I mean, you had a lot thrown at you. So, I mean, I wasn't surprised that you were the person that was there on that November's day in Sutherland Springs because, you know, your your life journey really was saying, you know, you're, you're going to go on to, or not only go on to great things, but you're going to be in and around some 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 tragedies and you have the willpower and strength to, to come through. And I think 
Stephen, I'd like to sort of start off with a little bit about the gun owners of America. So, I mean, when I met you, a little bit of it was was new for me when we met at the FBSN event um, in Missouri last year. So maybe a couple of questions, really. You know, what is the Gun Owners of America? And then how did you get involved in it, Stephen, post the Southern Springs tragedy? Well, GOA, or Gun Owners of America, is a uh, no-compromise, very singular-focused fighting for our rights to keep and bear arms, fighting for our Constitution, our Second Amendment. And we don't believe in, we believe that when the Founding Fathers said, shall not be infringed, it means exactly that, shall not be infringed. We don't believe that uh, there should be an ATF, which is a federal agency to regulate specifically our right to own a gun. And nowhere else in in the Constitution do they have a federal law enforcement agency to regulate the ownership of something or the right to do something that's part of the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, people don't understand. The Bill of Rights, i.e. the Second Amendment, uh, is not a freedom granted to us by our government. That's not what the Second Amendment does. Instead, the Second Amendment is, is preventing the government from regulating a God-given right to self-defense. And we recognize that at Gun Owners of America, and we are fighting first to stop any new legislation that might infringe upon that right. And we are also dedicated to fight and overturn and regain the freedoms that we have already lost. People don't realize how many freedoms that we have lost. And the gun owners of America, it's really interesting. And I, they um, are not a faith-based um, organization, but all of our board members are Christians, and that matters. So when I did my first event with gun owners of America, I went to speak at the Second Amendment Caucus in Washington, D.C. I got to speak to congressmen, men and women, you know, 22 of them, and I gave my testimony to them, and my testimony to, for Christ to them. And after it was over, I was back at my hotel, and I called our senior vice president, Eric Pratt, and I asked Eric what he thought. I said, consider this a post-event analysis because I don't know where I stand in, in GOA. And he said, tonight was perfect. I didn't know what, how they were going to feel about my Christian faith being on display. <clears throat> and he said, although we are a very narrow focused on our protecting our Second Amendment, we are Christians. And this is what gun owners of America needs. They need everybody to know that we are. And uh, so I said, then I do have a home. How I got to be uh, working for gun owners of America is the fight here in Texas to expand our freedoms, to regain our right to constitutionally carry in Texas. And that's a big one for me, is to be able to carry a gun either openly or concealed without a permit, because my, my Second Amendment is my permit to carry a gun. 
and yeah, I was very... can you say that because because Minnesota, where I am, you need the permit to carry. I think I don't know how many states there are, Stephen, where you don't, but obviously Texas is one of them. Yeah, actually, I, I did mine two weekends ago, something like that. You know, you do the four or five hour course for the for the permits to carry. Well, now I think we're up to twenty seven or twenty eight states that are actually constitutional carry states or permitless carry states, and some of the states we're still working on that are constitutional or permitless carry states, like Florida, you can carry a gun without a permit, but it has to be concealed. There are other states that you can carry a gun without a permit, but it needs to be concealed, which is really kind of funny that they both look at it at a different angle. And it really should be a constitutional carry, meaning you don't need a, a permit to carry either concealed or open. Uh, and, and that being said, I continue to keep my Texas my Texas permit up. I have a permit to carry in the state of Texas. And I choose to keep it current because it does a couple of things. Uh, it allows, we have reciprocity with 30-something other states meaning those other states recognize the Texas permit to carry. So when I travel and I speak, I'm going to Iowa day after tomorrow, and I'm going to be speaking in Iowa. And generally, somebody from that area will take a gun for me. I don't carry one at the airport, but someone from GOA that I'm meeting will hand me a gun to be able to carry while I'm in Iowa because they recognize my permit. And uh, so that's important for me to have a Texas permit so that the states with reciprocity that I go and visit, I can carry there also. And uh, then also, I if I go to purchase a gun in the state of Texas, you don't have to go through the background checks and things like that. If you already have a permit, because they do background checks on you when you get your permit. I don't have to go through that process to buy a, a firearm. And so then Gun Owners of America is a sort of policy advocates for all firearms holders. So it's something that people won't necessarily, might not see on a day to day, but you're there fighting for the rights of, of American gun owners, correct? We are. And again, I, I was down here in Texas and I was fighting for those rights. That year, we passed 14 pro-gun bills, and right along with things like the Suppressor Freedom Act, which allows any suppressor made in the state of Texas, not sold outside of the state of Texas, not carried outside the state of Texas, to be legal. And the hotel bill, which means that no hotel can prevent us from carrying in a hotel, it's considered an extension of our home if we're on the road. So we passed like 14 bills that the governor signed, and I was out there fighting. And GOA saw how hard I was fighting for these rights, and uh, they called me up and offered me a job. Well, it sounds like you're the perfect person to be working alongside them. So I'm assuming if people go to, if they Google Gun Owners of America, they can get some more information. And it sounds to me that you're most probably a 501c3 nonprofit. It can be, what is it? You live by donations. How do people learn more or get involved, Stephen? Well, we, we do live on do donations. Our lawyers aren't cheap. 
uh, and uh, we live off memberships and, and activism. We Once you join the GOA, and you can go to gunowners.org, gunowners.org, uh, and sign up. Once you become a, a member and sign up for emails, then you get emails of your area, what's going on in your state, in your local area, what's happening. And when you need to go to the Capitol and fight for your rights and things like that, and that's gunowners.org. One-year membership is only $25 a year. And we also have Patriot memberships and Life memberships also. Just a good example, what has recently happened with the pistol brace. Uh, And if people don't know, a pistol brace on an AR-15, if it's got a, a barrel that's shorter than 16 inches, then it's considered a pistol. And the ATF said it's okay to have a pistol brace, to be able to brace on your arm. And it was mainly first designed for uh, so handicapped veterans or anyone else could say if they only had one arm, it would brace a pistol to be able, so that they could shoot an AR pistol. And that's what it was designed for. And so the the ATF said it, that's fine. It's good. It's, it does not violate any law. And Joe Biden decided that um, he would change that, and he instructed the ATF to redefine the pistol brace as a short-barreled rifle. Therefore, under the NFA Act, National Firearms Act, it became illegal. They just redefined it and made it illegal after up to 40 million of them were sold. They just decided to make them illegal. And everyone that owned a pistol brace now, if they don't register it or destroy it, uh, they become a felon overnight as of June 1. Well, we filed lawsuits and we got Ken Paxton in the state of Texas also. And we're not just a Texas organization, we're a national organization. So, but we filed with Texas. Texas, Ken Paxton, our attorney general, because Ken Paxton is very friendly to the Second Amendment. And uh, he also filed with Texas a lawsuit against it. And the judge has now declared that there is a stay, meaning we don't have to comply at this point until it works through the courts for all the plaintiffs, which means all the, the gun owners of America members If you have a pistol brace and you haven't destroyed it and you haven't registered it, if you are a GOA member, you don't have to do that until and if and until the end of the lawsuit is all played out all the way to the Supreme Court. So we think we will overturn that rule in the the Supreme Court. Now, we were fighting for this nationwide. We didn't want it just to be for GOA members. But that's what the judge ruled is for the plaintiffs and also with the state of Texas because Ken Paxton signed that complaint. So all state employees of the state of Texas are exempt from having to comply to that also. Uh, And that has has really done one thing really well for us (laughs) is it's it's signed on a lot of new members because. Yes, I'm I'm sure there are. People with pistol um, braces are saying, oh, 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 oh. Let me sign up to GOA so the ATF won't be knocking at my door. Well, if there's 40 million sold, you should you you could grow 
a millionfold over overnight, couldn't you? So it's great. Well, it's really um, interesting to hear about that and that there's an organization out there fighting for people's rights. If they want to learn more, they can go to uh, either Google it or, or go to the website that Stephen mentioned to learn more about the gun owners of America and how it's protecting our rights without us even really knowing about it, fighting for our cause. So excited for um, people to, to reach out to you there, Stephen. And I want to move a little bit on to now your book. Have you got your book as well? People are watching on YouTube. I've got Stephen's book in my hand. You've got yours, Stephen. There you go. So I spoke to Stephen and his daughter, I think a couple of years ago, Stephen, didn't we, about this, a town called Southern Springs, uh, about um, getting this, this book launched. And so it was really excited to have it in my hand and, and have read the book. I, I think I shared in my Facebook group if you're in there, but when I read it, it was one of those books that I couldn't put down. And it's like, I know the ending to the story. I know your personal story, but I, I just couldn't put the, the book down. And there's some interesting things in there, Stephen. Um, so what I want to really encourage people to do to, to buy, I'm going to drop a link below. So it's called A Town Called Sutherland Springs, Faith and Heroism Through Tragedy. Uh, so there'll be a link in the show notes for you to go and buy the book on, on Amazon. But what um, surprised me, maybe, Stephen, about the book is I didn't realize it was going to be so much personal reflections in there and stuff about your life. And I spoke to you about how you proposed to your wife was in there. And that really intrigued me. And I think a lot of men that listen to this might might get a kick out of that story. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you proposed to your wife, because I found it quite funny when I when I heard as to how it came about. I, I find that uh, it's a good icebreaker when you have a bunch of couples together to ask the question, how did you propose? Because my proposal didn't go any way that I thought it would go. Uh, so I decided that I was going to propose to my wife and, and I was going to be a hopeless romantic. And what I was going to do is I was going, first, my wife had a Jeep Wrangler, hard top. And for her birthday, I bought her a bikini top for the, the Jeep Wrangler, which you could pull the top off and you could pull the doors off and a bikini top just goes over the, it's a cloth top that just goes over the driver's seat and the passenger seat and right. and just kind of over the roll bar. And uh, I decided that I was going to invite her for a day to the beach. And so uh, I was going to ask her to marry me um, on the beach uh, with the sun rising. And I think it was Hurricane Gilbert had hit the Texas coast uh, just two days before. And I didn't realize that I was going to run down to the, I, I realized that Hurricane Gilbert did, but I didn't know exactly what that meant. And so that morning I, I got up early and I had, I had washed her Jeep and waxed it the day before. That way it would kind of be sealed from the salt and the sand and stuff. And I told my mother that I was going to, I told my mother because I wanted advice whether I should buy a ring for my girlfriend before I ask her or whether I should wait. My wife is a very practical person. I could wait and get her to help me pick the ring out. And my mom said, why don't you give her your grandmother's wedding ring? And I said, well, that's an option and I'll let her choose that. And so my mom knew already that uh, I was going to ask my girlfriend to marry me. And mom said, come down early for breakfast. So we get at my mom's house at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and my wife walked in. This, this is a little funny part of it. I, my wife and I walked in to have breakfast with mom and dad. And mom had bacon, eggs, uh, biscuits, 
homemade biscuits and gravy. And uh, my wife said, you shouldn't have gone to all this trouble. And my mom said, oh, I get up every morning and have breakfast for my husband before he leaves for work. And my wife looked across the table at me and said, if we ever get married, that won't happen. Because it was four o'clock in the morning and it was, we got, man, I almost choked on my, <laughs> my breakfast when she said that, holding back a laugh. But we got down to the coast and it wasn't the pristine setting that I thought it would be because they had crews picking up trash and oil, you know, uh, that had washed up on, on the beach, the tar and stuff from the oil and everything that had washed up on the beach from the hurricane. And it was just a mess and people everywhere. And it's like, this is not the place to ask her to marry me. And so I was looking the whole day for the opportunity to ask her to marry me. And we went out to lunch and then we went, went and hit a bunch of antiques stores because that's what she loved to do and by the time we got back we were coming home and i said well the day didn't turn out the way i wanted it to so why don't we pick up a movie and go back to my apartment and watch a movie and we chose a movie called in search of noah's ark and back then it was a vhs and uh i walked into the room and since we had been in that convertible Jeep all day long, uh, we were sunburnt and windburnt and tired. And I walked in and she said, I need to go to the bathroom. And she went into the bathroom and I plugged in the video and I laid flat on the floor on my back. She walked out from the bathroom and I was staring at her from flat on my back. And I looked up and I said, you know, this is the time I, I said, will you marry me? And she looked down at me and laughed. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay, that's not good. She didn't answer. She just laughed. And I said, I said, okay. And she said, I, I told her, I said, I'm serious. And she said, I know you are. And I said, well, okay. And she said, well, I'm not going to turn you down. Yeah. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she says, that means yes, I guess, but don't tell anybody yet. Yeah. And I said, oh, I got to tell my mom. <laughs> I, told, I explained her the fact that mom was couldn't even tell dad. And she wanted to tell her parents before it got out very far and wide that, that we were going to be married. But sunburned, laying on the back, flat on my back. You know, most men get down on one knee. Yeah, well, like, you're, in, you're in beach shorts as well, I think I read in the book as well. You, you left that out. So and it, it reminded me, when I was reading it, I told you offline, it reminded me of how I proposed to, to my wife because I'd set up this elaborate weekend and was going to propose and it didn't happen that way. But I can remember I did, being English and an old gentleman, I, I called her father and asked for permission to, to, to marry his daughter. And I can remember as, as he hung up the phone, he said, good luck. And I, I can remember, <laughs> what, what, what does he know that I don't know? Why, why do I need good luck, you know? And, and, and that struck me. Maybe that's what made me nervous for the weekend to propose. I was thinking, what does good luck mean? But, but it was great, Stephen, because like I said, there's a lot of personal reflections in the book. Um, and it was really, it was really nice to see, as you said, such in a, a, a sort of tragic story. So you, the, the subline is faith and heroism through tragedy. I, I, I know like a little bit about this book. Go on, Stephen. I would like to say a little bit about faith and heroism through tragedy. Yeah. That line, um, I was conflicted putting that on because I, 
as a subtitle of the book because I was I was afraid people would think of think that I was trying to claim heroism, and and it's not just about saying my heroism, but it's about a lot of the heroism of the people in the church, some some of the first responders that we talked to and interviewed, some of the people like Johnny Langendorf that uh, opened up his truck and let a crazy guy barefoot with an AR-15 into his truck and gave chase down the road. And uh, people like Gunny Macias that was shot four times, uh, five times in the abdomen, couldn't even stand himself, but used his Marine voice to bark out commands to get people to start motivating and saving lives and then saying Jesus loves me with a with a little girl when she was scared. Uh, Julie Workman, that was a emergency room nurse that was shot through the breast and had one, one skip off of her leg. And uh, she got up and started tying tourniquets within the church, bleeding from her own wounds and stuff. Or Zach Poston's grandmother, that as Zach Poston pushed a little girl underneath a pew to save her life and get her out of the view of the shooter. The shooter started shooting Zach. And when he went down, he got shot seven times, but his grandmother crawled on top of him, sacrificing her life and saving Zach. You know, there was heroism that happened throughout my community. And, uh, you know, from the first responders, from the people that ran in, the neighbors that ran in, and help the the shooting victims. And, you know, again, that's why I was conflicted of putting that on the cover, because if you don't read the book, you don't realize it's not about me. It's about my community. I would never live anywhere other than Sutherland Springs, Texas. I never want to. It's a beautiful little town of under 600 people. And I love everybody. I'm fourth generation in this little town. I never want to be anywhere else. And why, Stephen, I know, um, and that's great for you to share those reflections, and, and they are all in the book. It's very powerful when you read people's stories. But I, I know a bit of a background behind the book, and you and Rachel, Rachel Howe your daughter, who, who co-authored it with you. Uh, why was it so important for you to write this book? Because it's been a journey to get there. I mean, we're, this year we're coming up for six anniversary of the tragedy but so, so why was it so important for you Stephen to to write this book and, and share your reflections of that day why why it's so so important is because it's tied God into it so many places you can tell that God had his hand in on Sutherland Springs before it happened and after it's happened it it's a story about how God used me and and when God calls you, I, I, I tell people the answer is yes. Uh, here I am, Lord, uh, because God called so many people that day to be part of this. It's, and, and, you know, when we first wrote the book and we hired a, um, a literary agent to try to get it published, and he was not a Christian. And the first thing he, he said after he read the book is it was extremely well written. He said, but we need to reach out to uh, the right and the left equally. And we need to also reach out to the Christians and non-Christians too. So what he proposed is that we take God out of the, out of the book, take 
all of the influences and references about God out of the book and toned down my Second Amendment stance. And my wife looked at me and said, I feel like Satan's holding a bag of money up saying, this can be yours. Just take God out of it. Take your faith out of it. And you'll, you know, and we said no. That was something that was unacceptable for us is to take our faith out of the book. It was a, a, a book. It's a book about a, a church shooting. How could we take our faith out of, because that's the only thing that got us through any of it. So we refused and he said, well, I'll see what I can do. And he never did anything with the book until after two years. He purposely tried to kill the book. And then when we finally were released from the contract with him, he said, good luck. And uh, then the publishers that we talked to after that said, oh, man, it's a great book. And it should have been published years ago, said, but it's old news. And so it's not relevant to us. I was like, it's if you read the book, it's relevant for any time. It may not be fresh on the news but it's still relevant today. The things that are in the book are relevant. And so we ended up self-publishing with the help of John Lott. And everybody in the shooting world knows who John Lott is. His book, his first book was More Guns, Less Crime. He's a doctor and he's a statisticianist and he's an he he's absolutely an ingenious man. He is he's over the top. And he's now written like 11 books. And he said, you don't want to go through a author, a publisher anyway. You want to self-publish. And Simon, you had suggested that we do the same before also. And But he helped us through the process, and he wrote the foreword to my book uh, and to our book. And also Ted Cruz has written a foreword. Um, Colonel Grossman's written a foreword. You know, just a lot of people, yeah. Lars Larson and and Jack Carr and Dana Lowe, they all wrote burps for the book. And, and it's uh, funny that you say that they, people saying it wasn't um, relevant anymore. I did a webinar only three weeks ago about the case study of Southern Springs, but I did it through the eyes of understanding the assailant as to, you know, who he was, his background, his lifestyle, choices that had been made by him or for him um and i spoke to sherry pomeroy afterwards and she still says that you know she she can never get enough knowledge about that day to to try and learn what happened and why it happened so i i think um your book couldn't have come up more timely time if that's such a, a sentence because there, there's always so much learning that comes from these these situations so even sherry pomeroy herself is saying that she's always she's gonna be a lifelong learner for it so um yeah fascinating what well, one of the things i wanted to cover Stephen, was one that i found um really cool and a tribute was that you went through the victims and shared their stories and when i interviewed frank about why he feels he wasn't there and what was god's plan with him um why wasn't he there on that day uh, you know you being at home feeling it was possibly raindrops on the window and then realized it was gunfire and got your ar and engaged the guy there was a couple of other people that I found sort of challenged in my mind as to well, why them? Why were they there? And there was a couple that were church shopping in the area 
and had never been to a church before. And tragically, they lost their lives in the um, in the shooting. Do you want to talk about that? That couple? I forget what their names are. I didn't write them down for my research. But do you know the couple that I'm talking about? Yes, yes. So he was retired Air Force, and he had just retired. And him and his wife came and visited the church, and they were visiting for the very first time. It's really interesting. And and at some point, I, I think I want to write a book called After I Put My Shoes On. And, and that's a great of, name. You told me that the other week, and I was like, that is a great name. It, it's kind of a follow-up to this because so many things have happened after the shooting and after this book. And after I got my shoes on, after I put my shoes on, because everybody knows that I ran across the street barefoot and engaged a shooter. So... I, I think that's the perfect title. And I was going to Pennsylvania and uh, had posted that on Facebook that I was going to do an event in Pennsylvania. And his family called me, his sister, or messaged me on Facebook and said, if you're going to be Pennsylvania, I would like you to come and have dinner with us. We lost our brother and sister-in-law and my father wants some closure. And so um, I went to Pennsylvania and not knowing, and I met them and we cried together in the restaurant. We prayed together in the restaurant and they said it gave their father closure and he died shortly after that. Uh, but mm. some of the things that have happened, I've been to the Arctic Circle to speak with native Alaskans about Christ because uh, their missionary told me that um, what they value the most in their culture is a man that would risk his life for his tribe. And I needed to go to the Arctic Circle to speak with them. And I did. And I was invited into a uh, Alaskan mucky. And what a mucky is, is a um, sweat lodge. Basically, it's like 12 degrees outside. And they have a big barrel of water and a big wood burning stove and it's red hot and it's got rocks on top of it with held up on it with chicken wire and they dip down into this barrel of water and pour it over the top of the rocks and it steams in there and me and all the all the native alaskans are are in native alaskan men are all there and the boys in this steam sauna and it's 140 degrees in there, and we're sweating, look like lobsters and stuff. And that's where they tell their stories of faith. And I was able to go and speak to them, and I even got some of their culture in on that. And their culture is, and they said that their religious man long ago was approached by a bird, and the bird told him, bird told him that there would be a pale-skinned man that would come up the river with no oars. And the rivers in Alaska run at about 18 miles per hour because they're all fed from snow melting off the mountains. And they run at 18 miles per hour. And at that time, they didn't know anything other than paddle boat, you know, oared boats, you know, canoes or whatever. And this bird, they said, told him that there would be a pale-skinned man that came up the river with no oars. And on that boat, there would be a black box that contained God. 
and uh, they the explorers that m first made contact had a sailing ship and they were trying to make the northern passage and there was a storm brewing and so they turned to get their ship out of the storm's path and they came up the river to get out of the storm and they were met by these native alaskans and it, they were amazed by this big ship that came up the river with no oars and right away they thought this must be what the bird had told him about they climbed on board and guess what these guys kept a Bible in a black box in the cabin of the boat. And that's the story that they told me about their culture. And I, I was amazed. And then I gave them my story of faith and how God watched over me and sent me over into a battle. And yeah. uh, so it's stories like that, stories about meeting the president you know, Donald Trump. Well, Stephen, I want to go back a little second. I want I want to talk about the the, the guy and um, the retired military. I think you said he was, and, and his wife. So, when you met his father, then, so how? What was the distance in time between the tragedy and then his father holding on, needing closure? And how how many years after was that? Oh, that was probably a year and a half afterwards. Wow. So his dad needed closure for a year and a half, and then you know you, you get this message. You, you go and see him. What what are your emotions when you're meeting the the family? Because I know that you um, you have a lot of emotions yourself surrounding. You wish you'd been able to do more that day, or if you'd got there got there earlier. I mean, what, I, what are you? I, I feared meeting with them because I didn't know what they wanted. Uh, because I was not there in time to save their loved ones, and and I I feared that. You know, I I felt helpless, you know, because I I I was not on time for them to save the the person, the people they loved. And so I didn't know what, how this meeting was going to go. And I prayed about it. And I was up there with survival mindset, training churches with survival mindset. <laughs> I've done like eight tours in Pennsylvania. It's my second home. And uh, that's what I was there for. And I had Rick Capozzi with me, which he's the mastermind of survival mindset. And um, Rick said he would drive me by and he would, well, Rick had to leave the table when we started talking because Rick got so emotional, he had to walk outside. And he didn't know the family. And uh, so he had to walk outside because he was so emotional, he was crying. I didn't see the need for him to do it, but he felt like he was interrupting in something that was beyond him. Yeah. But uh, we, I talked to them and realized they didn't hold it against me that I wasn't there quicker. Uh, they just wanted to meet uh, the man that had stopped the massacre and uh, talk with me and tell me a little bit about them and, and how um, when he married his wife, she was not a Christian and how the family was, I guess, against him marrying someone that was not a Christian, but, but through faith and their prayers and stuff, she became a strong Christian and became part of the family. And they loved her every bit as much as they loved him. And uh, it was just a walk through that. And we talked about all of that. 
and they were able to. And then in the end, again, we interviewed all the family members of all the people that died. Well, not all the family, but the family members that we could about the people that died and got the stories about who they were and incorporated those into the book because they didn't want their family member to be forgot. And we didn't want that either. And so they gave us the stories of what what uh, they wanted the world to know about their loved ones. And we tried our best. And after we wrote the stories, then we took what we wrote, my daughter and I, what we wrote, and we took it back to them and said, proofread it. Make sure that it's it's right and it's what you want the world to know. And it's well-written. And before we printed anything, they had to approve of what was being printed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly powerful. And you said something about, I think you said, beyond him. And I think when I try and reflect back on that day and you know, the questions I put before the Lord as to well, why was this person there? Why was someone not there? And, you know, we're looking at things greater than ourselves. But even as you told that story about with being with those men in Alaska when they said that, you know, this fair-skinned man or this white-skinned person is going to come on an oiler's boat. I mean, there's just so many different um, things around there. I mean, you were destined to to be that person, I think. You know, Frank and Sherry, to be able to share their story of hope and heroism post-fan, I think it's it was pivotal to the safety of other churches that Frank wasn't there that day because of how he now shares shares the message. So there's a lot of questions that I have forgot around that. But I think when you when you seek to listen to understand, I think there's a lot of messages there um to say, you know, good God God was there during the moment and God put the right people in place. So Stephen, really honored again as always to to talk to you and and it is a great book like i said i mean i read it in like two or three days i couldn't put it down so i really encourage people listening to this podcast to go and check out the book a town called sutherland springs so Stephen, um you can buy the book on amazon right and buy the book on amazon and when you sit down to read it i would suggest you have a box of tissues close yes yeah for sure the the, the early chapters are very, very emotional as you learn people's personal journeys. So, well, Stephen, I'm going to drop a link. People have asked what? me before why I don't put it into a audio version. And, uh, I, and why don't you read it in an audio version? And I'm going to tell you, I can't get through it. I can't, I can't go back and read it. We have read it and forced ourselves to read it and edit it and make it what it is. But... I can't read it without breaking down myself. And so there's no way I could do an audio version. But my son is going to do an audio version of the book eventually, and he's going to record it. And how cool can that be? Because my daughter wrote my book, and my son's going to do the audio version. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Well, Stephen, until we meet again in person, thank you for taking time out of your day to, to be me like i said it's always an honor and privilege to be in your company and i love the book i'll i'll be sharing it with all my all my network and really encourage people to go and read it because even six years now post the event there's so much information in there which is going to help people so um stephen thank you for joining me today thank you and god bless